Hearsay, a podcast about law and legal issues for students and everyone else. Hello and welcome to another episode of Hearsay. I'm Robert Corr, a lawyer and legal studies teacher. I have to apologise for the delay between episodes. Uh, This one has been ready to record for a little while now, but my daughter has just started daycare this year and so we've caught pretty much everything that's going around. So fingers crossed that things are back on track now. In this episode, I'll talk about an issue that has been bubbling away on the political agenda for a very long time now. Should two people of the same sex have a legal right to be married in Australia? How have other countries come to legalise same-sex marriage? And what is the current status of the debate here in Australia? But first, here are some of the legal stories making news recently. Summary matters. The first thing that I want to mention is an unusual procedure that has taken place in the committal proceedings for uh, Demetrios Jimmy Gargasolis. Now he's the man who's accused of the uh, the deaths of causing the deaths in the Burke Street tragedy earlier this year. Given the scale and complexity of the investigation. The prosecution has applied to the magistrate's court for an extension of the usual time to produce a brief of evidence. Uh, Normally they have six weeks, but in this case the court uh, agreed to give them until October to finalise the brief, with a committal mention scheduled for December. The last report I saw said the police had already taken over 400 witness statements and expected to take at least 500 more. Now, In an unusual move, and some are reporting that it's an unprecedented move, Justice Lasry summoned the parties before the Supreme Court to talk about whether the case could be sped up. Now, this is unusual because the committal proceedings have to operate through the magistrate's court before deciding whether or not there is sufficient evidence to transfer the case to the Supreme Court for for the eventual trial. Um, But Justice Lasry said, People are in custody and the community has to wait for the criminal justice system to take its course, and I, in my own limited way, am trying to do something about that because of the public interest. So he said the Supreme Court wanted to take a more active role uh, in ensuring that the case gets to trial as quickly as possible. When told that the case would not likely, was not likely to reach a trial until 2018, his honour replied, that seems a very long time to me, I must say, with all due respect to everyone involved. He suggested the DPP could consider a smaller stream of evidence for the purpose of the criminal trial with a longer and fuller investigation producing evidence for the coroner's court in due course. A criminal trial, a murder trial, is obviously aimed at holding somebody accountable for the deaths of a person, or in this case, many people. But a coronial inquiry is at, is at least partly looking at how incidents of that type Um, could be avoided in the future. So some of the evidence that the coroner would be interested in uh, goes a long way beyond what the the murder trial would need to consider. So Justice Lasry is really asking the police to essentially conduct two separate investigations, one aimed at getting the criminal trial up as quickly as possible, and then looking at the coronial inquiry down the track. Uh, The case will return to the Magistrates' Court for a special mention in August just to make sure that progress is being made in finalising the brief. Yahoo 7 and its Sydney-based journalist Crystal Johnson have been convicted and sentenced for contempt of court. They committed what's called a subjudice contempt, uh, which involves um, publishing information 
that could prejudice uh, the fairness of the trial. Now, they were reporting on a Melbourne murder trial, and the journalist uh, added information to the report that had the potential to prejudice the trial if the jury read it. Now, although the, the journalist and the organisation is based in Sydney, it was an online publication and could obviously be read by people, including jurors, in Melbourne. And it caused the trial, uh, this murder trial, to be aborted. They had to um, throw out the, uh, the case, call a fresh jury, start again, uh, make sure that nobody had read that material. Now, the journalist was placed on a two-year good behaviour bond, while the publisher, who the judge said had to take ultimate responsibility for the lack of editorial control, was fined $300,000. As of this week, uh, community correction orders will no longer be a sentencing option for a number of serious offences, including murder, rape, various child sex offences, intentionally or recklessly causing injury, in circumstances of gross violence, or cultivating or trafficking a large commercial quantity of drugs. Now, a community correction order is um, what, we, what you might think of as community service. It involves the person living in the community but being subject to um, supervision, a, a little bit like parole, I suppose, um, but also uh, can require the person to engage in community work, rehabilitation programs, uh, anger management training, you know, any kind of relevant rehabilitation. Now, Attorney General Martin Pakula said, the only appropriate sentence for these serious crimes is a prison sentence. The maximum length of a CCO is now five years, and there are also changes to how CCOs can be combined with terms of imprisonment. This change comes after the Auditor-General reported on management of CCOs. The Auditor-General is a government, an independent watchdog organization that looks at how effectively government, um, really how it spends its money, does it get value for money, and in this case it was looking at the administration of the community corrections system. It made a scathing assessment and said thousands of people were at high risk of re-offending, they were not being monitored effectively due to problems with training of staff, and in particular they singled out an IT system that couldn't cope with the workload, couldn't keep track of who was, on, uh, who was on a CCO and who might uh, pose a, a risk of reoffending? The restrictions on CCOs should help a little in addressing this by forcing judges to lock up serious offenders, but this will put greater strain on the already overcrowded prison system, which is already struggling to cope, uh, struggling to provide rehabilitation programs for the existing pr- prison population. So the risk here is that a short-term solution may cause greater problems in the long term. In 2015, the Victorian government banned solariums, or tanning beds, as medical experts say they cause skin cancer. They're rated as a class 1 carcinogen, which is the same category as asbestos, to give you an idea of how dangerous they can be. At last year, a, a Melbourne couple were the first uh, to be convicted under the new laws, and they were fined more than $60,000. And now, a Melbourne man faces 1,109 charges for running an illegal tanning bed operation. His lawyers have been given an extension of time because uh, with over a thousand charges, there's obviously a very large brief of evidence for them to get their heads around. Australian tax law says that companies don't need to register and pay GST if their turnover is less than $75,000 per year, except if the business provides taxi or limousine travel for passengers in exchange for a fare. 
Now, the ATO ruled some time ago that UberX drivers fall into this exception. So they, they provide taxi or limousine travel, so they must register for GST regardless of their turnover. Uber challenged the ATO, arguing that whatever it was their drivers provided, it wasn't taxi travel. Justice Griffiths of the Federal Court heard a debate about what makes a taxi a taxi. Does it need to have a taxi license, a light on the roof, to take passengers who hail it from the side of the road and to use a taxi meter? Uber said that, that those features are essential to making something a taxi. Ultimately, though, the court said no. The term should be construed broadly and not in a technical way. And while Uber allows its drivers to provide taxi travel through new technology, that doesn't change the fact that it is still taxi travel. So according to the federal court, uh, Uber is a taxi service and its drivers must register for the GST. Examination in Chief All right, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, the main topic that I want to talk about today is same-sex marriage or equal marriage. Do we have a human right to marry a person of the same sex? Now, Article 23 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights states that the right of men and women of marriageable age to marry and to found a family shall be recognised. But does this mean that men have a right to marry men? and women have a right to marry women. The United Nations Human Rights Committee heard a complaint from a New Zealand couple in the uh, early 2000s and gave an official interpretation that says the covenant doesn't guarantee a right to same-sex marriage, but doesn't prevent it being recognised either. They made this decision largely on the basis of a textual analysis, and part of that was comparing the language of that article, Article 23, to the other articles in the Covenant. And they said, because it uses the term men and women, whereas other protections include uh, a reference to people or persons uh, without specifying the genders of the people involved, then they must have intended this to apply in a different way. Now, that interpretation is about 15 years old now, and uh, academic legal experts have questioned whether the Human Rights Committee would reach the same decision today. And one of the arguments that they make is that the, the Covenant was uh, explicitly concerned to ensure that both parties in a marriage would have equal rights in that marriage, and that they had been concerned that where you had a marriage between men and women, that the gender discrimination often meant that the wife had fewer rights than the husband. And so they used the, the clear expression men and women to ensure that you had gender equality within marriage, but that wasn't intended to limit marriage to only include a marriage between a man and a woman. Of course, the academics are making a hypothetical argument. The case has not gone back to the United Nations. So really the question is, how is same-sex marriage going to be recognised in domestic law? Now, the constitution is often the place where countries protect the, the human rights of their citizens. And there have been constitutional decisions in various countries that do recognise the equal right of same-sex couples to marry. Now, one country that falls into that category is the United States of America. And Australia's constitution does borrow, well, I suppose it borrows fairly heavily from some aspects of the United States constitution, but not in a way that would make a similar court case possible 
uh, in the Australian context. The United States, like Australia, is a federal political system. So many of the federal elements of our constitution draw on the, U the United States as a precedent. So we have a Senate with equal representation for the states, six-year terms, the concept of a capital territory separate from any state, a list of enumerated powers, their Section 8, our Section 51 for their national government, with most issues being left to the states. In Australia, marriage is one of the enumerated powers in Section 51. Our constitution says the parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the Commonwealth with respect to 21, marriage. But in the US constitution, section 8 mentions some familiar things like coining money, customs and excise, the military, but does not mention marriage. So in the American system, Marriage law is a matter for the states, and this was confirmed in the US by a Supreme Court decision in 1972, a case of Baker and Nelson. The state law in Minnesota didn't specify the gender of the two people who could be married, but when two, pe two men were de denied a marriage license, they sued the government. The state courts uh, upheld the government's decision so the men sought to appeal the case to the Supreme Court, arguing that their constitutional rights were being infringed. At that point, the US Supreme Court refused to give them leave to appeal, which effectively, uh, effectively denying their, their case and leaving it up to the states to decide what to do about same-sex couples. And the states in America took various different positions on same-sex marriage over the decades. Most didn't allow them. Some recognised foreign same-sex marriages. Some allowed civil unions, which is a type of relationship registration that is similar to marriage but doesn't use that title. Now, more recently, some, ha some states in the US have allowed same-sex marriage, either through legislation, state referendums, or through state court decisions. So there's a patchwork, uh, which is precisely how a federal system is designed to operate. It was left to the states because they envisaged that states would have different laws about this. However, the next big national court decision was in 2013, and this related to how federal law interacted with state marriage recognition. So two women were married in Canada, and their marriage was recognised under New York state law. When one of them died, she left her property to her spouse, and federal tax law said the transfer of property from the deceased to their spouse should not be taxed. But the federal government had passed a piece of legislation called the Defense of Marriage Act, which only applied to federal issues, so it couldn't define marriage for state purposes, but it did say that if, if a federal law was going to distinguish between um, a married couple and, and uh, single people, that in those circumstances, federal law would not recognize same-sex marriage, regardless of what the state law uh, said about that relationship um, in the state where those people lived. So in this case, the tax law that related to the transfer of a deceased estate from one spouse to the other, as far as the state was concerned, they were a married couple, they were spouses, as far as the federal government was concerned, they were not a married couple, and so the tax would apply as if the money was being given to some unrelated person.
the Defence of Marriage Act actually said, in determining the meaning of any act of Congress or of any ruling, regulation or interpretation of the various administrative bureaus and agencies of the United States, the word marriage means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, and the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or wife. So it wasn't taking over the definition of marriage from the states. It was just saying that only certain marriages would, re- would be recognised at the federal level. Now, the widow in this case did challenge this federal law in the Supreme Court, and the challenge was based on the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Now, we tend to think of the Fifth Amendment in terms of the privilege against self-incrimination or the right to silence, because we hear people in movies and in American TV shows saying, you know, I plead the Fifth when they're arrested by the police. But actually, the Fifth Amendment includes a number of clauses, including what is called the Due Process Clause. And that says, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And in 2013, the Supreme Court delivered a split verdict, five to four, so a narrow victory, that uh, decided that the failure to recognize this couple's marriage was a violation because it deprived them of their liberty, their freedom to transfer their property between the two of them, without due process of law. Uh, The court said, DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, forces same-sex couples to live as married for the purpose of state law, but unmarried for the purpose of federal law, thus diminishing the stability and predictability of basic personal relations the state has found it proper to acknowledge and protect. And the court explained that the liberty protected by the Fifth Amendment's due process clause contains within it the prohibition against denying to any person the equal protection of the laws. So they said within the concept of uh, due process is this underlying concept of equal protection of the law. So the the Fifth Amendment, um, although it's expressed as a due process clause, there is an implied equal protection clause kind of hidden within it. So on that basis, the Defense of Marriage Act was invalid because it was incompatible with the rights protected by the Fifth Amendment of the US Constitution. But of course, marriage law in general was left as a matter for the states. It's not something that is defined nationally by that Defense of Marriage Act. You'll recall that the last time the court was asked to consider whether this was a state or a federal issue, uh, they declined to hear the appeal, saying it didn't really involve federal constitutional principles. But in 2015, the Supreme Court was effectively forced to take on this issue because a number of federal courts in different states had reached different conclusions about this. So different precedents had been set at the same level within the federal jurisdiction, and the Supreme Court would need to clarify which was the correct federal law. And the case name um, is Obergefell and Hodges. But that's actually a shorthand for these six separate cases. We only refer to um, the first person on the list. Um, There were actually six cases from six different states that all raised the same issue, which is whether the 14th Amendment required states to recognize marriage between two people of the same sex. Now, you'll remember that the previous case, the US and Windsor, was based on the Fifth Amendment, which the court said contained an implied equal protection clause but only applied to federal law. 
Well, the 14th Amendment includes an express equal protection clause that applies explicitly to the states. And it says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of the life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. So that's a due process clause. And then, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So if the Fifth Amendment, which has an implied equal protection clause uh, applying to the federal government, requires recognition of same-sex marriage, the argument now was an express equal protection clause that applies to the states should also protect same-sex marriage for the same legal reasoning. That equal protection, if that includes the equal right to marry a person of either sex, then that's what it must mean at the state level as well as the federal level. And the majority in this uh, 2015 Supreme Court decision uh, held the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person, and under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. The court now holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfilment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. And with that, the Supreme Court ruled that while marriage is still a matter for the states, those states could not discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation. So any state ban on same-sex marriage was incompatible with the federal, the U.S. federal constitution and the 14th Amendment. So prior to that decision, 36 states had already recognized same-sex marriage. Remember, some of them through their state parliaments and some through uh, referendums, some through state uh, constitutional decisions. But after this decision, it had to be recognized in all states of America. Another country that includes an equal protection clause in its constitution is the Republic of South Africa. This is a much more modern constitution. It obviously comes in the aftermath of the apartheid regime. And so it um, takes a really strong approach to the protection of human rights. And Section 9 of the South African Constitution, part of their Bill of Rights, uh, says that everyone is equal before the law and has the right to equal protection and benefit of the law. Equality includes the full and equal enjoyment of all rights and freedoms. The state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly against anyone on one or more grounds, including race, gender, sex, pregnancy, marital status, ethnic or social origin, colour, sexual orientation, age, disability, religion, conscience, belief, culture, language, and birth. So you can see this is a really comprehensive approach to human rights that South Africa has taken um, given their uh, recent history. And in some ways, this is clearer than the United States Constitution because it expressly prohibits discrimination on grounds of gender, sex, and sexual orientation. But even though the South African Constitution came into effect in 1997, it wasn't until 2005 that equal right to marriage was recognised. 
the Marriage Act, uh, which had been established under the old apartheid-era constitution, included references to husband and wife, which courts had interpreted to mean that the two people had to be of different sexes. Now, a lesbian couple in South Africa challenged this interpretation, saying, obviously, that the new constitution had to override any old laws, and they took their case to the Constitutional Court of South Africa, which is the highest court in their legal system responsible for constitutional interpretation. And nine judges in this case, the Minister of Home Affairs and another, and Fori and another, unanimously held that the common law definition of marriage was inconsistent with this equal protection clause in the new constitution. Justice Sachs, who wrote the judgment on behalf of the unanimous court, said, The exclusion of same-sex couples from the benefits and responsibilities of marriage is not a small and tangential inconvenience resulting from a few surviving relics of societal prejudice destined to evaporate like the morning dew. It represents a harsh, if oblique, statement by the law that same-sex couples are outsiders and that their need for affirmation and protection of their intimate relations as human beings is somehow less than that of heterosexual couples. It reinforces the wounding notion that they are to be treated as biological oddities, as failed or lapsed human beings who do not fit into normal society and as such do not qualify for the full moral concern and respect that our constitution seeks to secure for everyone. It signifies that their capacity for love, commitment, and accepting responsibility is by definition less worthy of regard than that of heterosexual couples. The antiquity of a prejudice is no reason for its survival. Slavery lasted for a century and a half in this country, colonialism for twice as long, the prohibition of interracial marriages for even longer, and overt male domination for millennia. All were based on apparently self-evident biological and social facts, All were once sanctioned by religion and imposed by law. It is precisely those groups that cannot count on popular support and strong representation in the legislature that have a claim to vindicate their fundamental rights through the application of the Bill of Rights. The court ordered the government to amend the legislation to bring it into conformity with the Constitution within one year. So they gave them a deadline of one year to fix the South African Marriage Act. They passed the Civil Union Act on the 28th of November 2016. It was given assent on the 29th of November and it came into force on the 30th of November, the last possible day before the deadline set by the Constitutional Court. But the government did comply with the order and same-sex marriage is now recognised in South Africa. Another country provides a point of contrast to this, and that is my, uh, my homeland, Ireland. Um, in 2006, in a case that was very similar to the United States and Windsor case, a lesbian couple who were legally married in Canada sought to have their relationship recognised in Ireland for tax purposes. They wanted to file a joint tax return. If they filed separate tax returns, it would uh, result in them paying more tax. So they wanted their marriage recognised so that they could be taxed at the same rate that other couples were. Now, like the US and South Africa, Ireland has an equal protection clause in its constitution. It says, all citizens shall, as human persons, be held equal before the law. So you might think that um, the Irish case applied that equal protection clause in a similar way and recognised same-sex marriage, but it's not that simple. 
Ireland is officially a Catholic country, and its religious status was an important part of its cultural identity when it asserted its independence from Britain. Uh, so there are many Catholic social traditions included in the Irish Constitution. So the Equal Protection Clause is in Article 40, but Article 41 stated, The state recognises the family as the natural, primary and fundamental unit group of society and as a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights, antecedent and superior to all positive law. The state therefore guarantees to protect the family in its constitution and authority as the necessary basis of social order and as indispensable to the welfare of the nation and the state. The state pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage on which the family is founded and to protect it against attack. Now, given that strong language, the courts in Ireland said that this essentially locked the law of marriage in place as it stood at the time the constitution was adopted in 1937, because it refers to the family and the protection of the family in its constitution uh, and pledging to guard with special care the institution of marriage, there's an implication in that language that the definition of family and the definition of marriage that was accepted in the community at the time the constitution was adopted uh, would have to be protected by that provision. Now, that has meant that Ireland has had to, in fact, amend its constitution when they wanted to legalise divorce, and that didn't occur until the 1990s. So it's perhaps not surprising that in 2006, the Irish courts uh, said that their constitution enshrined the common law definition uh, of marriage as being between a man and a woman. But the case did bring the issue of same-sex marriage to public attention, and this was at a time when the Irish government was talking about modernising the constitution and looking at the ways that it might need to change the constitution in order to bring it into line with community expectations. So um, in 2011, a new government was elected and it announced that it intended to hold a referendum to change the constitution. And its proposal was to insert a sentence into Article 41, which is that clause about the protection of family and protection of, of marriage, but this new provision would say marriage may be contracted in accordance with law by two persons without distinction as, as to their sex. And Ireland held a, con a constitutional referendum in May 2015, and just over 60% of voters cast a ballot because, of course, Australia's compulsory voting system is unusual around the world. So 60% of voters cast their ballot and of those, 62.07% voted in favour. So a new Marriage Act was passed in September in accordance with the referendum, and uh, the first same-sex marriages were held in Ireland in November 2015. Now, just as an aside, the government that uh, prepared the Irish referendum also appointed the plaintiff in that early uh, unsuccessful constitutional case to have their same-sex marriage recognised. Uh, the government appointed one of the plaintiffs to the Irish Senate, and she is now the, the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs. And here in Australia, it's uh, another Irish politician, uh, the Irish-born Stephen Dawson, a member of the WA Parliament, who was a member of the first Australian same-sex couple to be married in Australia. Now, that marriage didn't last very long because 
the uh, law that allowed it was uh, invalidated by the High Court. So I'm going to use that as a segue to return to the Australian situation. You'll remember at the outset of the podcast, I mentioned that marriage was uh, mentioned in Section 51 of the Constitution. It's in fact a, a concurrent power. So this is a power that the Commonwealth and the states both have constitutional authority to pass laws about. Um, But Section 109 of the Constitution obviously says that where laws passed by those two levels of government come into conflict on a particular issue, then the Commonwealth law will override the state law. And in the 1960s, the Commonwealth passed the Marriage Act, effectively taking over uh, marriage and regulating it at the Commonwealth level. And in that initial uh, Marriage Act, 1961, There was nothing to specify that the members of the couple had to be of opposite sex. Um, However, it essentially uh, was was undefined because uh, at that time, the common law definition of marriage was clear that marriage had to be between a man and a woman, and essentially Parliament wanted to leave the common law definition in place. Um, It wasn't for many years later that people began to talk about recognizing same-sex marriage. It seems that in the early 2000s, there were two applications made to the courts to uh, seek to have uh, same-sex marriage recognized. It was widely believed that these applications would be unsuccessful because uh, while there was no definition of marriage in the Act, uh, it did require as part of the ceremony that an authorized celebrant had to announce Marriage, according to law in Australia, is the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others, voluntarily entered into for life or words to that effect. This is quite similar to the marriage law in South Africa prior to their constitutional court decision. The definition is left to the common law, but in South Africa there were references to husband and wife in the announcement made by the celebrant. The Australian announcement was in some ways clearer because it contained an assertion about the law according to law in Australia. Uh, And so it talked about the content of the Australian law. And of course, we don't have an equal protection clause in our constitution. So they were unlikely to succeed. But of course, uh, you could never say never because the common law is obviously designed to uh, allow a degree of flexibility. And the Mabo decision in the 1990s had shown that the High Court was willing to make quite radical changes to people's previous understanding of the common law. And so the Australian government wanted to preempt any decision by the, by the court to interpret the act broadly to include same-sex couples. And so they inserted in section uh, 5.1, the definition section, they inserted a new definition Marriage means the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. It also included a new section 88EA, which uh, prevented foreign same-sex marriages being recognised in, uh, in Australia. So in 2004 is the first time that our Marriage Act specifically required that marriage uh, does not include a marriage between a man and another man or a woman and another woman. One of the benefits of a federal system uh, is that we have a whole series of governments that have overlapping uh, or complementary jurisdictions 
and particularly in areas of concurrent power, so where we have the Commonwealth and the states who both share responsibility over a particular area of the law, um, the different levels of government can often push each other um, to see whether they can um, improve the law or bring it into line with their own preference. So in the area of marriage law, the Commonwealth government um, had clearly staked out its position that it thought that marriage should be between a man and a woman. But of course, public opinion had begun to shift on this issue and the states uh, and territories began to do what they could to recognize same-sex relationships. This is kind of similar to what was going on in the US where we had um, uh, state responsibility over the issue uh, and then the federal government kind of coming up with its own federal definition that would apply in particular contexts. Similarly, in uh, Australia, we had a federal definition of marriage and the states then working uh, around that uh, definition where they could. So, for example, uh, in Victoria, the, the state government offered um, a relationship register, so not purporting to be marriage or a civil union, but um, uh, that the state, the state government would recognise um, a relationship ceremony, um, which is a sort of a gesture towards recognition of their marriages, but acknowledging that the Victorian government uh, didn't have the power to override that Commonwealth law. But they also began to look at more ambitious legal strategies, and Tasmania and the ACT in particular began to question whether or not the Commonwealth could actually exclude uh, state or territory governments from uh, recognising same-sex marriages as marriages. And it relies on uh, really a technical reading of the Marriage Act. So what they tried to do is to argue that marriage as a concept might be particularly broad, includes all kinds of marriages, same-sex marriages, polygamous marriages, um, all of these different things, but that because the Commonwealth had defined marriage under the Commonwealth law as a marriage between a man and a woman, then there must be space around that where uh, a state or, or a territory could recognise a same-sex marriage, and that would not necessarily be incompatible. You could have the Commonwealth heterosexual marriage living alongside state and territory same-sex marriage. And if those two laws don't come into conflict with each other, then the Commonwealth law doesn't actually override the, uh, the state or territory laws. And this is exactly what the ACT attempted to achieve. Uh, and it's a case that ended up in the High Court when the Commonwealth inevitably challenged the ACT legislation. Now, we tend to think of these issues through the lens of Section 109 of the Constitution, and certainly that's the focus of the VCE uh, Legal Studies course. But the position of a territory is somewhat different because they are actually Commonwealth territories, and the Constitution gives the Commonwealth government the power to make laws for the territories. Essentially, the Commonwealth has the same power uh, within a territory that a state government has within a state. And in the ACT and the Northern Territory, the Commonwealth has delegated its legislative power to the territory governments. Um, so it's a bit like state governments setting up local government. The Commonwealth government has set up territory governments within the NT and the ACT. So section 122 of the Constitution says the Commonwealth Parliament has the power to make laws for the government of any Commonwealth territory. And they used that power in 1988 to pass the Australian Capital Territory Self-Government Act. 
which sets up a legislative assembly, so a unicameral parliament to make laws for the ACT. However, uh, that uh, self-government is within limits. So it's a little bit like Section 109. Section 28 of the Self-Government Act says that uh, an ACT law has no effect to the extent of its inconsistency with other laws that apply within the ACT, which essentially means Commonwealth laws. Um, And the Commonwealth can always use this to override the ACT's laws. Uh, It famously did this in 1996 after the the Northern Territory uh, passed uh, a Euthanasia Act, and the Commonwealth responded by inserting into the the, both of the territories' self-government acts Uh, a new provision that says the Assembly has no power to make laws permitting or having the effect of permitting, whether subject to conditions or not, the form of intentional killing of another called euthanasia, which includes mercy killing or the assisting of a person to terminate his or her life. So I think four people had had used the Northern Territory's euthanasia provisions before the Commonwealth intervened. Uh, But from that point on, the ACT and the Northern Territory no longer had the power to make those laws, and that means that their their laws are ultra virus or they're beyond power, so that those laws no longer have any legal effect. In terms of the marriage debate, uh, what this means is that the ACT is essentially operating within um, very similar constraints uh, to the state governments, in that they can pass marriage laws because they've been given self-government, they've been given the power to make laws about uh, anything that they choose subject to being overridden by a valid Commonwealth law. Um, And in 2013, the ACT Parliament passed the Marriage Equality Same-Sex Act, and it created a new uh, category of marriage within the ACT, a same-sex marriage between uh, a man and another man, or a woman and another woman. And they relied on this technical argument about the scope of the Commonwealth Marriage Act. So what they said was marriage at the Commonwealth level is about marriage between a man and a woman, but there's this space uh, left over where we can pass an, a compatible law that also recognize, uh, recognizes another form of marriage between two people of the same sex. And they argued that the Commonwealth law didn't explicitly ban same-sex marriage. It simply stated that marriage other than one between a man and a woman, would not be recognised as a marriage under the Marriage Act. And people began to be married under this law. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Stephen Dawson, a WA MP, and his partner travelled to the ACT to be married, uh, and their same-sex marriage took place. Uh, But the Commonwealth Government, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, took a very different interpretation to the ACT Government, and they argued that... uh, Marriage in the Commonwealth Marriage Act was intended to be the, the sole regulator of what constitutes a valid marriage in Australia. And they took the case to the High Court to argue that their Marriage Act would override the uh, ACT Marriage Act. And this is what uh, constitutional lawyers call covering the field. And that's where a Commonwealth law um, is kind of drafted broadly, or at least it has a really broad uh, intent. And even if it seems to leave some uh, areas unregulated, that the way it's drafted shows that it was intended to really um, cover the whole topic. So in this case, the Marriage Act is intended to cover the field of marriage. So if it leaves out a mention of same-sex marriage, that's not to say that they intended the states or the territories to be able to fill that gap. All it's saying is 
Uh, we're going to define marriage in a particular way, and anything outside that is not considered valid, even if we don't explicitly mention it in the Act. And the High Court ruled against the ACT and overturned their Same-Sex Marriage Act um, because they said the 2004 amendments to the Marriage Act made plain, if it was not already plain, that the federal marriage law is a comprehensive and exhaustive statement of the law of marriage. Those amendments applied the newly introduced definition of marriage to the provisions governing solemnization of marriage. These particular provisions of the Marriage Act, read in the context of the Act as a whole, uh, necessarily com contain the implicit negative proposition that the kind of marriage provided for by the Act is the only kind of marriage that may be formed or recognised in Australia. It follows that the provisions of the ACT Act, which provide for marriage under that Act, cannot operate concurrently with the Marriage Act and accordingly are inoperative. So the ruling there is that the Commonwealth intended to cover the field and that there was no room left for the ACT um, or a state government to uh, pass their own same-sex marriage act that kind of fits alongside the Commonwealth definition. But crucially, the High Court ruled that the term marriage in Section 51 of the Constitution is much broader than just including the definition of marriage that was recognised by the colonies at Federation. The High Court noted that 19th century British common law included a series of decisions dealing with foreign marriages, uh, which foreign marriages would be recognised in Britain. And at the time, they divided them into categories of Christian marriages, which were compatible, and infidel marriages, which were not. And the High Court basically said that uh, even in the 19th century, the, the idea of marriage was broader than the particular definition of marriage that existed at the time. And the court said, when used in section 5121, Marriage is a term which includes a marriage between persons of the same sex. So the High Court has given a clear and unanimous uh, explanation uh, or interpretation of the High Court that says marriage potentially includes same-sex marriage. So this put to rest any doubt. There had been doubts expressed saying, you know, if we take an original interpretation of the High Court and say, well, what would someone in the 19th century think marriage meant? You know, and arguably they would not recognise a same-sex marriage as being a marriage. And the High Court said, well, even in the 19th century, um, people recognised that there were different types of marriage around the world. So the limits of marriage are much more open-ended, and it's for the Commonwealth to determine what the content of the specific law about marriage is from time to time. So this rules out the need in Australia for a constitutional referendum to allow marriage equality to be legislated. So the, the Irish constitution, clearly using that language of defending the definition of a family, defending the, the traditional marriage, clearly uh, showed that their constitution intended marriage to be construed in a limited way. But the Commonwealth constitution just uses the word broadly, uses the word marriage, and it's up to the Commonwealth to make that choice. By the same token, there's no rights clause in our constitution, express or implied. We don't have an equal protection clause of the kind that America and South Africa uh, have and that their constitutional courts used to um, require recognition of same-sex marriage. What the High Court here has said is there's no guarantee that same-sex marriage will be recognised, but there's nothing to prevent same-sex marriage being recognised. They really said, this is a matter for the Commonwealth Parliament, and they put the ball back in the Commonwealth Parliament's court.
And actually, I think this is probably the real uh, objective of the ACT in introducing its same-sex marriage law. Um, they could always, like the euthanasia bill, they could always have that law invalidated by an, an act of the Commonwealth Parliament. So I think what they were really doing is trying to push the campaign for same-sex marriage along and to get a clear precedent from the High Court that really said this is a Commonwealth responsibility, uh, the debate must be had at the Commonwealth level and decided one way or the other. So the attention of the community really did turn back to the Commonwealth and particularly to the major parties because no same-sex marriage bill was going to be passed without at least a majority of the MPs in the major parties agreeing to it. Uh, and there's kind of internal tensions within those parties. Same-sex marriage is not an issue that um, kind of falls neatly along the ideological divide. So you have members of both sides of politics who support and members of both sides of politics who strongly oppose same-sex marriage. And there's a lot of internal politicking about things like, should those MPs be given a free vote, a conscience vote, where they're not required to vote along with their party? Um, the Labor Party for, for a long time said this is a conscience issue because of the religious component to it. They kind of reversed that and said, no, from now on, uh, we are all going to lock in and vote in favour of same-sex marriage. You have the coalition um, now being pressured to allow a free vote. And particularly for the Liberal Party, this became something of a distracting issue because it wasn't something that they were united behind. So it wasn't going to be a priority of the government. And the public debate was kind of distracting people's attention from the topics that the government really wanted to push. And those in the Liberal Party who opposed same-sex marriage could see that the more the issue was on the public uh, agenda, the more likely it was to build the momentum needed um, for change. Um, opinion polls consistently show that a majority of Australians believe that the issue um, should be resolved in favour of legalising same-sex marriage. Um, so somewhat counterintuitively, they proposed to hold a plebiscite. So the High Court had said, we don't need a constitutional referendum, uh, but they said, let's have a vote of the public anyway compulsory vote, all uh, registered voters uh, will turn up and say, do you support same-sex marriage or not? And it's counterintuitive because the polling is showing um, that there's widespread support for same-sex marriage. Um, and so that kind of raised two concerns. One is that it was a delay tactic designed to kind of get the issue off the agenda for a while. Um, some argue that it might provide cover for, you know, a conservative MP who um, just wanted the issue dealt with and would be able to say, well, my electorate voted in favour of same-sex marriage, so even though I personally disagree, um, I'll vote in favour, and that would give them the opportunity to kind of change their mind and save face while doing it. But the more cynical explanation um, that was offered, uh, including by members of the Liberal Party uh, who opposed the plebiscite, was that this was an opportunity to run a really negative campaign because we know that negative campaigns work against referendum proposals. So perhaps they were preparing to uh, run the same sort of campaign on a plebiscite issue and that they could use some of the reasons that we know referendum proposals are unsuccessful. One of them being um, where you don't have uh, unanimous support of the two major parties the public can then be reluctant to throw their support behind it um, when it's a very controversial issue. 
there was a suggestion that they might use the campaign to try to confuse people because, again, when people aren't sure of the effects of a referendum, even if they kind of agree with the overall principle, um, if they're not sure how it will be implemented in practice, they may vote no as a sort of a safety uh, option. And so we saw this in the debate about same-sex marriage. What, what does it mean for priests? What does it mean for people who bake wedding cakes? Will they be forced to do things that are against their religious beliefs? And perhaps uh, the public might say, well, look, I support same-sex marriage, but I don't know about all of these technical issues. So look, I'll just, I'll vote no because uh, things seem to be working all right as they are. And perhaps most cynical of all uh, was a suggestion that there would be a kind of a campaign of uh, vilification. Um, certainly throughout this debate, we have seen um, certain groups uh, raise arguments. So for example, we've had politicians say that same-sex marriage would lead to bestiality um, and incest. We've had groups talking about uh, how same-sex parents are somehow damaging their children, and that's a claim that's just not supported by any legitimate evidence. In fact, there is um, some evidence that suggests uh, same-sex couples um, provide a better environment for their children, perhaps because it's just more difficult for them to uh, to become parents. Um, but there's this sort of risk, and it's something uh, that that supporters of same-sex marriage said, look at what happened in Ireland. There was this very negative campaign uh, urging people to vote no. And so they said, look, even if we win the plebiscite, there's a real risk to the mental health of LGBTI people in Australia. And they're already a group that deals with um, very high rates of suicide, very high rates of depression and anxiety and other mental illness. Now, I don't know if that really is the strategy um, that they had in mind, but it does strike me as odd that when you have consistent opinion polls for the last, um, well, probably almost a decade, showing that the public supports same-sex marriage and wants same-sex marriage to be legally recognised, it is very strange that it's the opponents of same-sex marriage who are saying, let's go to the public and ask them what they think. So my instinctive reaction is to be wary of the proposal. And it also raises the issue of, well, why this topic? You know, why not other topics? And Justice Michael Kirby, who is Australia's um, first openly gay High Court judge, uh, raised this uh, recently when he said, we didn't do this for the Aboriginal people when we moved to give equality in law to them. We didn't do it when we dismantled the White Australia policy. We didn't do it in advances on women's equality. We didn't do it most recently on disability equality. Why are we now picking out the LGBT, the gay community? It's simply an instance of hate and dislike, hostility to a small minority in our population. It's un-Australian. So he's quite strongly of the view that the campaign would be divisive and damaging and that it's really designed to sort of give vent to uh, discriminatory attitudes and hope that people's prejudices might overcome their initial support for same-sex marriage. The Liberal Party took the plebiscite plan to the election, to the last election, and they prepared a bill that would have held a plebiscite last February, um, but that was obviously unsuccessful. We didn't have a plebiscite in February uh, because supporters of same-sex marriage in the parliament uh, opposed 
the plebiscite plan. So they kind of took that Michael Kirby view that it's not really something that should be dealt with by uh, a popular vote. It's something that should be treated like all of the other rights issues the parliament has dealt with. And that, in fact, their argument is there are a majority of uh, MPs who support same-sex marriage. And if everyone had a kind of a free vote or a conscience vote, it could be passed uh, relatively soon. So there are, in fact, four bills currently before the parliament um, to recognise same-sex marriages. One of them relates to um, recognising overseas same-sex marriages. And then there are three that deal with substantively allowing people to uh, enter a same-sex marriage in Australia. Now, those will not be debated in the lower house as long as the coalition holds a majority there and as long as it maintains that the plebiscite bill is the only way uh, that it will support same-sex marriage in Australia. So the, the debate has moved again behind the scenes and those organisations in the community that are lobbying uh, in favour of same-sex marriage have really focused their attention on those coalition MPs because what they want is for enough coalition MPs to feel confident uh, that they can cross the floor without electoral repercussions. So they want to make sure that those MPs think, you know, even if I contradict the official government position, um, my electorate will still support me at the next election. And so one of the things that we've seen is polling being conducted in uh, coalition-held seats. So recently, uh, polling published in the Fairfax newspapers showing that in 12 uh, coalition seats, a majority of voters um, of all persuasions support same-sex marriage. And uh, the same organisation, Australians for Marriage Equality, that is um, running those opinion polls has also started doing targeted advertising. So they've been running pro-same-sex uh, marriage ads at the airport in Canberra, really hoping to kind of put the, the issue in the minds of MPs as they arrive in Canberra um, for parliamentary sitting weeks. And in the last week, we've seen, tw I think it was 20 uh, CEOs of major Australian companies sign a letter encouraging uh, Parliament to deal with same-sex marriage, to hold a parliamentary vote and legalise same-sex marriage uh, as soon as possible. Now, that's interesting because the business community is generally uh, considered to be uh, associated with the Liberal Party. And so you see this sort of effort where the campaign is no longer about raising public awareness of same-sex marriage. It's really honing in on, well, which MPs need to swap sides in order to get this done in the Parliament. And perhaps a sign of the effectiveness of this strategy is the response from um, a man who's described as a leading Conservative MP within the, the coalition, uh, the Immigration Minister Peter Dutton, um, who came out really uh, vocally against those business leaders. And he singled out the CEO of Qantas, who is an openly gay uh, business leader, and said, Alan Joyce, the individual, is perfectly entitled to campaign for and spend his hard-earned money on any issue he sees fit, but don't do it in the official capacity and with shareholders' money. And certainly don't use an iconic brand and the might of a multi-billion dollar business on issues best left to the judgment of issues and elected decision makers. And this is a really strange reaction, I think, uh, given that Peter Dutton is more than happy to accept political donations from public companies. Um, and to argue that these issues are best left to the judgment of elected decision makers, uh, at the same time 
as arguing that Parliament shouldn't be responsible for making the decision, it should go to a plebiscite. It just seems really confused. Of course, the elected representatives who do support same-sex marriage are continuing to use uh, the processes within Parliament to try to build that momentum. So recently, the Senate held a select committee on the exposure draft of the Marriage Amendment Same-Sex Marriage Bill, and it was looking at um, kind of if same-sex marriage was to go ahead, what kind of uh, balancing is to be done uh, in terms of religious freedom. So that question of well, you know, marriages are often performed by priests. They might be from a religious group that doesn't uh, recognise same-sex marriage within their religion. So would the law uh, require those priests to uh, hold a same-sex marriage ceremony? Now, I think most people would agree that that's not something that would be um, consistent with religious freedom. But then there's the broader question of, you know, what about someone who is uh, a baker and is baking um, a wedding cake, if they discovered that the cake was for a same-sex marriage, would they be allowed to refuse to serve that customer? And the Senate committee more or less drew the line there. They said, if you are a registered marriage celebrant and you personally uh, oppose same-sex marriage, that you wouldn't be required to officiate at a same-sex marriage. But if you're providing a service like making a wedding cake, driving a wedding car, taking photos, whatever that might be, um, that that's not uh, interfering with your religious freedom in a fundamental way to say, no, you're providing a commercial service and you provide that without discrimination. And that's more or less where the Victorian Charter, for example, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, draws uh, the line between um, religious freedom and um, uh, sexual identity. There was a case involving a Christian youth camp uh, that wasn't in fact a religious organization, it was just a business that used Christian in its name and they were told, look, you can't discriminate against uh, an LGBTI youth support group um, for religious reasons because really you're a business. Now if a church was directly running the camp, that would be a different story. So the Commonwealth law, uh, the Senate committee has recommended that it draw the line in a similar place to say, so we've got a Senate inquiry that's trying to keep the issue uh, in the public debate. There's also been newspaper reports that liberals uh, who support same-sex marriage are moving behind the scenes because they, they want the issue dealt with before the budget. They, want, they say it's distracting, uh, they want it over and done with, and so they're hoping that it'll be done by May, which is uh, budget time. Um, and one of the kind of compromise positions that's come out of this is the idea that the plebiscite could be held uh, by a postal vote. Now, the plebiscite was knocked back by the parliament, but that's because to hold a compulsory attendance vote, so similar to an election, everybody turn up at a polling place and vote yes or no to the, to the plebiscite question, that required legislative uh, endorsement. The government can't compel people to do that without... Uh, a law requiring it. Um, however, the Electoral Commission has got uh, the power to provide postal votes uh, on a commercial basis. So if an organisation wants to conduct a, a, a vote, you know, it might be uh, members of a large club or um, I think industrial organisations like trade unions are actually required to do this, that they have to hold a postal vote of their members and they just pay the Electoral Commission to provide that service. And so there's been a suggestion in the media that the Liberals are considering um, just getting the executive government to hire the Electoral Commission 
to run a voluntary postal vote. So everyone would receive ballot papers in the post, but they wouldn't be obliged to return them if they didn't want to. And um, it's actually come out that Peter Dutton is one of the people kind of considering this option um, as a way of moving the debate on and doing it in a way that allows the coalition to control the process. So, for example, those conservatives who might accept that, look, same-sex marriage is coming, they might think that it's better if they're in charge of drafting the bill so that that balance between uh, religious freedom and sexual freedom can be drawn, you know, to pr protect those um, religious freedoms as much as possible, um, uh, while also kind of just killing the issue so that, that it's done, it's over with, and they can move on to issues that they think might be more uh, electorally popular for them. Interestingly, Peter Dutton is one of the MPs who is reportedly pursuing this plebiscite compromise plan, the postal plebiscite plan behind the scenes. So it may be that behind the scenes, he's working to sort of get same-sex marriage over and done with, uh, and then publicly he's making these sort of loud statements uh, to shore up his conservative credentials. So stay tuned. It looks like same-sex marriage is back on the agenda, uh, and we may have some kind of resolution in the coming weeks or months. Address and reply. You might remember last episode I discussed the legal issues surrounding homelessness and talked about how the Melbourne City Council's uh, proposed homelessness laws were um, a kind of a regression to the idea of vagrancy that has sort of been removed from our legal system uh, in the last 50 years. Um, I had a reply from uh, Rowan Leppert, who is a Greens councillor on the City of Melbourne, um, who wanted to point out that the existing Melbourne City uh, local laws already include uh, part 2.1, which is about prohibited activities in public places. And it already says a person must not in, on, or within the hearing or sight of a public place, cause or commit any nuisance, adversely affect the amenity of that public place, or annoy, molest, or obstruct any other person in or on that public place. And uh, as Rowan says, these are provisions that already deal with camps in the city. So that really supports the concern that I raised in that last episode, that when the Lord Mayor said these provisions are needed to deal with large camps of homeless people that are blocking people's access to the footpath, you know, that really isn't what the laws do, that those provisions already exist. And what the proposed local law uh, really does is criminalise homelessness itself to um, impose fines on people for uh, being unable to afford or unable to access adequate housing. Now, the Melbourne City Council's uh, consultation period, the public consultation period on the proposed local law changes expired last Friday. The process now will see the council potentially hear from witnesses to actually call people in and say, you know, you made this submission, we'd like to know more about it. Uh, a recommendation will then be made by the council staff to the council itself, and the, the proposed homeless laws will be either accepted or rejected. So stay tuned, I'll let you know what the outcome is. If you'd like to get in touch with me about something uh, that I've spoken about this issue, or perhaps to raise uh, a legal issue that you'd like me to talk about, you can do that on Twitter, as Rowan did, that's at hearsaycast, uh, or you can leave a comment on uh, the show notes for this episode, uh, or leave a voice message 
at hearsaypodcast.com. Planet Friend. This time around, I'd like to recommend another podcast that uh, deals with uh, current legal issues. Um, it's called Prima Facie, and it's hosted by Ron, who is a former Victoria Police detective, and David, who is a lawyer, and I believe he is currently uh, some kind of legal advisor in the Victorian Parliament. And so they discuss current legal issues and legal events, uh, criminal cases, um, changes to the law, uh, all of those sorts of things. It's a very informative podcast, but it's also very funny uh, because they come from different backgrounds and they often don't see eye to eye. And there's a fair bit of good-natured teasing between the two hosts, um, but it's always informative. And I strongly recommend that you give Prima Facie a go. You can find that at primafacie.com.au. Adjournment. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode. And the humorous story that I'd like to leave you with today was suggested to me by a listener, Amanda. I'll just read the headline from the uh, Above the Law legal blog. Arson trial ends with lawyer's pants on fire. Not a metaphor, his pants caught fire. Uh, This was a case uh, involving an uh, accused arsonist Uh, The trial was almost over. The defense lawyer was making his closing address to the jury. And while he was making that speech about how his client's car had spontaneously combusted, something in the lawyer's pocket spontaneously combusted. uh, And uh, he had to run out of the the room and put his pants in the sink. uh, And jokes aside... Uh, he is now being investigated because of the suggestion that the timing was just too coincidental and that he may have been trying to illustrate uh, the ability of technology to spontaneously combust. Uh, The police are now investigating whether the incident was an accident or whether the lawyer's pants were on fire when he explained why his pants were on fire. See you next time. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future topics, I'd love to hear from you. There are a few ways you can reach me. Leave a comment on the website, send me an email at robert at hearsaypodcast.com, say hi to at hearsaycast on Twitter, or you can also leave a voice message on the website. That's hearsaypodcast.com. <laughs>